Welcome to the Bridge Church Podcast. Our purpose statement at Bridge Church is to reach people where they are and help them grow. We hope today's message inspires you towards growth, and we pray it's life-changing, and we hope to see you soon. Good morning. Good morning. So, uh, yes, this is the last in our series, and uh, we are excited to continue to talk about going public um, in in this last installment. Um, But before I I do, I did want to just acknowledge the fact that we were reminded again last night about why it's so important for us to be witnesses of good news um, in light of so much bad news that's in the world. Uh, In case you hadn't heard... uh, There was a uh, mass shooting in uh, Monterey Park, California, just east of Los Angeles, uh, where people were uh, gathered uh, for a Lunar New Year, um, you know, celebration. There's still lots of details that are unknown. Um, This was a community that was 65%, is a community at 65% Asian. And so not only do we have this sense of just angst, about just these kind of horrific shootings that are happening in our nation, but also, you know, the stoking fears about potential motivations being racially or otherwise. But again, we're just, we just don't know. But what I want to do is make sure that we pray uh, and, um, and, and just stand in solidarity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, come before your presence. Uh, God, we are tired, Lord. Uh, We are saddened about these living in a place where mass shootings are like almost just common, the taking of life. And uh, we just pray that you would um, wrap your arms of love around uh, the 10 people, families who were lost uh, and those who are affected all over the nation and really the world um, and what a time that's supposed to be celebratory and joyful um, marked by pain and Lord uh, we do pray that you would uh, shake us up that you would shake up our political systems our government our nation to do something not just offer thoughts and prayers but to offer action that can change laws as you change hearts and so we just commit this to you and uh, we thank you that as we sang earlier we know that death is not the end we know that there is hope and yet God uh, we also pray for healing in our land in Jesus name amen well you know there's a lot of speculation and reasons that people give to what's happening in our world and our society and things that are broken and I think sometimes irresponsibly so. Um, So I wouldn't wouldn't do that. But I will say that there is a clear sense in which people are struggling with a sense of despair, a sense of, you know, a moral compass, a sense of truth, a sense of how to handle just the anxieties that are happening in our world. And increasingly, even though we know that Jesus said that I come to have life and have it and that they may have life and have it abundantly, the thief comes to steal, kill and destroy. 
And when there are less opportunities or less uh, of a, an awareness of the type of hope that God offers, it becomes harder and harder for people to dig themselves out of the despair pits that they find themselves in. It was over 133 years ago that Frederick Nietzsche famously wrote, Gott ist tot, in German, or God is dead. Now, Nietzsche was an atheist and meant that our idea of God had, had died because Europe no longer needed God as a source for all morality, value, or even an ordered universe. He was observing the increasing secularization in the West and was led to believe that not only was God dead, but we, meaning people, had killed him with the scientific revolution. Now, he also believed that this European society was the successor of the Greco-Roman Empire, and as a result, he valued this sense of racial superiority that came with this idea of the evolution of humans into this new place where God wasn't needed. And oftentimes we see this correlation. You know, when people don't think they need to submit themselves to God, that's a very dangerous place because then they think they replace that sense of worship with themselves. And Barna research, which we've been referencing throughout this series, has reminded us that we are seeing a rise in secularism, a rise in the idea that life truth, goodness can be found outside of a, a, a framework where there's God. In fact, there's many people who more and more just believe in self, right? Like, I'm going to just live my truth, and somehow that internal compass is just as good or efficient as anything else. Another thing that's a challenge in our culture is the you-do-you vibes, right? Like, just a sense of, hey, you know, I'm going to do me, you do you. And so, the worst thing to some people you could do is to try to invite them into a, a deeper truth than what they have already planted their flag in. And then, last but not least, another aspect of the challenge is the idea of seeking conversion is increasingly seen as religious extremism by some. How dare you think that you should have something that I should receive? people still want to kill God. But the reality is this is not new. You see, they thought they could kill Jesus and make him go away. But they only made the dilemma worse because, see, when you try to kill God, he resurrects. He comes back. And so... He's still changing lives, which is why we're here. So even 133 years later, God still has something to say about bringing life to death. Now, I will acknowledge, though, that the witness of the church is sometimes on life support today. And because people can't distinguish and separate the failures and the failings of a public witness from the God that that witness points to, we have to then resurrect our witness. And that's really what we're going to be talking about today. To go public with our faith, we must resurrect our witness.
just a review in our first uh, address on this, we talked about how before we can go public with Jesus, we must go personal, right? It has to be a personal relationship. Second, we, we talked about last week how we must listen before we speak and really engage where, where people are. And now we're going to address how to be an effective public witness. And we're going to look at someone who was the most effective public witness that we see in Scripture uh, of the resurrected Jesus, and that is the Apostle Paul. The book of Acts, the second half of it in particular, captures a lot of his missionary journeys in which he traveled all over the known world at the time, proclaiming and preaching Jesus. He's written much of the New Testament in his letters, and we are guided by his uh, perspective. But the thing that's interesting is that Paul was always going public with his faith, and it sometimes got him in trouble, the type of trouble that many of us even fear that could happen when we go public with our faith. So I thought it would be instructive and, and, and helpful for us to kind of look at how he navigated this challenge and went public. Because in his case, it was more than just maybe some alienation or some awkward moments or being considered the weird person at work or with friends. He got arrested for his. Like literally in prison as a disturber of the peace and someone who the, the arguments that they were making about what he was doing was that it was contributing not to human flourishing, but to human oppression. Sound familiar? And so we're going to take a snapshot where he's literally in a trial, a trial because of accusations brought before him by uh, leaders, Jewish leaders, many that he knew personally because he was among them. And now was considered to being accused as an enemy of the state. And so we're going to be looking at that. But before we do, uh, we're going to give you a little bit of backdrop in Acts 25. Now, just to give you a sense of the stakes here, the stakes are the death penalty. That's what they are seeking as a result of Paul's actions. He's been languishing in prison, waiting for this opportunity to speak and give a defense for himself. And we see in Acts 25, 23, which sets the table, the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the audience room with the high-ranking military officials and the prominent men of the city. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus had been the person, the Roman uh, leader that was in charge of dealing with this area of Caesarea where they are in, in of Jerusalem. And he had held Paul there for several years uh, while the people who were accusing him were trying to have him killed. And so he has a friend come by, King Herod Agrippa, and his sister Bernice, and he said, hey, you know what, won't you try this case? Because he knew that Agrippa had a Jewish background and this had something to do with religious issues. So he said, hey, how about you just come in and hear this case with me? And, but he decides to do it big, right, and have this big entrance for him to come in. And you can get the sense of the, the it says the pomp and the circumstance was that was involved with this. But none of this was for Paul. Don't get it twisted. This was a political maneuver. So, okay, he gets set up, Agrippa sits down, let me hear this case. In verse 26, he says, then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. 
So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews. And especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jewish people all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify if they are willing that I conform to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? We're going to pause there for a second just to kind of reflect and catch up on some of what Paul is doing here. Notice first, though, he only begins to address Agrippa in the crowd once Agrippa says, you have permission to speak. Paul listened. He understood the customs of the time. And sometimes we get ourselves in trouble when we speak before we've been given permission to speak. When we are addressing and trying to reason and connect with, you know, people, look, I might be going to work. I don't have time for this deep spiritual conversation. I might be behind on a deadline. I might have something else going. Do I have permission to speak? But once he did, the thing that's really interesting is we read this and you can kind of hear some of the, the flowery language, but, but in, in doing some preparation and some background, you discover that Paul is using a very uh, consistent framework for how you addressed authorities in the Roman times as when you made an appeal. There were three parts to it. First is called the exordium, which was an introductory address to a king. The second was a narasha, which was the narration of events as they happened, which is why he explains his story in a very you know, segmented way. And then the last part, the argumentio, was proof and evidence in support of your defense. Why am I bringing this up? Because he knew the context that he was speaking into. And if you look at Paul's way that he communicated, he often shifted it, depended on where he was at and who he was talking to. You should check out Acts 17, where he's addressing philosophers and Stoics uh, at a place called Mars Hill in Greece. And when he does there, th these folks don't have a Jewish background like he does. So he doesn't bring up any of the Old Testament. He brings up their philosophers and actually quotes them. But in this particular context, he's addressing someone who, like himself, has a Jewish background, is familiar with these things. And so as a result of that, he brings up that context, but also in a way that understands the forum that he is in. Question, what is the context of your witness? What is the context that you find yourself in? And are you aware of that before you begin to speak and communicate? 
This is important because if you're at work and, 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 and there's a sense in which, you know, there's like decorum and expectations about how, when you're supposed to communicate and when you're not, and if it's supposed to be at break time or it's supposed to be at this scenario, then that's important for you to know and be submitted to that environment so then you know how to best have permission to speak. We also have to understand what the culture is saying around us. As I mentioned in Acts 17, Paul is so uh, aware and has studied the cultures, he quotes their poets. Can you quote the poets of our day and bring it back to Jesus? What's your media literacy look like? Are you formed by the culture or are you allowing the culture to help you to form someone else's perspective on who Jesus is? This is essential because I love, look, I love movies just as much as anybody else. I go, you know, all the time. So, but it's important when I look at Wakanda forever, right? For example, <laughs> to not just embrace and be in the land of, you know, but, but to also understand what is it that Shuri's struggle with doubt and grief, how can that inform the way I have a conversation with somebody who likes the movie about the things that might cause us to doubt? In the midst of grief, you know, and, and I listen to Beyonce saying, "You won't break my soul." What are some of the truths about how the things that tend to try to break our souls down that that are that are there that I can relate to, and how can that relate to the truth that nothing can separate us from the love of God? How do you make connections between what you're experiencing and are you thinking on a level that can critique it and break it down and then say something different? Do you know your context? Paul knew his context. And as a result of that, he knew King Agrippa's Jewish experience with customs. He also knew that the thing that's a trip is that Agrippa's whole family is involved with this story. His grandfather was the one in the Christmas story when we read about Herod who wanted to kill all the babies to try to kill the Messiah. That's his grandfather. When we read about John the Baptist getting beheaded, that's his daddy that called John the Baptist to be beheaded. And so now he's in front of this, per this Herod now, this Agrippa, and he's saying, look, I know you understand all the stuff that's going on because your family had a front row seat. But what are you going to do with this, with this hope? The other thing he talked about, and oh, I wish I had time to get, this is another summer for another day, but the way that he connects the 12 tribes, and, he's, and what he's saying that they're hoping for and, and with the resurrection is he's saying this is the culmination of what we were hoping for. This isn't something separate or something different. And unfortunately, because of a history of uh, anti-Semitism, a, a history of power plays, that oftentimes people think that there's something uh, con in conflict between Judaism and Christianity. In fact, Paul is saying, I was a Pharisee. I was studied all of this stuff more than any of you in here. And what I found was that the Messiah that I had been looking for was actually Jesus. But in order to do that, in order to speak for ourselves, we have to have a humble boldness. We have to resurrect a humble boldness. Now, some people are like, resurrect, humble boldness? How? Those two things are opposite, aren't they? No, they're not. We have to have, both have the humility to step into places and navigate them in such a way that we respect the mores, the, the culture, the customs of this place, like Paul does, but we also have to be bold enough to speak out boldly, without equivocation, no flinching. 
No chaser. Just be like, yo, this is where I'm staying. Ten toes deep on Jesus. You know, I had to experience this recently. You know, as last week, um, you know, I heard a lot of chatter and talk about how the Giants were going to destroy the Eagles. And I'm in enemy territory. And I just endured it humbly. And I went over to Pastor James' house, my spiritual leader, to, to kind of sit at his feet and learn. And he just kept going about how much they were going to get destroyed. And I just said, mm-hmm, I hear you. <laughs> and I just waited. And when what happened, what I knew was going to happen, because I had the hope. Now we're here. <laughs> Festus had invited Agrippa into this, but Festus himself was corrupt. He had been holding Paul for two years, waiting for a bribe. It, the text tells us that in the previous chapter. And he valued his job more than justice. So he actually didn't acquit Paul, even though he knew there was nothing wrong to hold him for. And that's the broken world in which we live. And yet at the same time, it's important for us in the midst of that to be able to know how to navigate that process. Paul didn't get embittered. He didn't start clapping. In fact, he doesn't even address Festus because he's aware that Festus has no interest in the truth. So then he only addresses his Agrippa. It's important when you know the context of your witness to know who is really open to the things of God. And to focus on that person instead of somebody that might just be trying to create a distraction. All right, let's move on. Verse 9. He continues, Paul does. I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time, I went from synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. The Lord replied, now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. Paul shares his testimony. What actually happened in vivid detail. What his BC, his before Christ was like. He also uses this expression that Jesus said that, you know, why, you know, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. This was, would have been an expression that was very familiar 
in the in a Roman context, it basically meant like goads were like when someone says you're goading me, right? Like it's it was a way that uh, people who were um, herding cattle would kind of have a little prick to them so that they would move in the right direction. But sometimes they would be, you know, rebellious or proud. And so they would just try to still go in their own way, even though they were being prodded. And eventually they would be like, all right, I'm tired of getting stuck. So I'll just go this way. And so what Jesus is saying here is that, why are you kicking against the goads? I am drawing you to yourself, which also indicates that even while he was still persecuting Christians, there was something in his, in his conscience, something in his personality. There's a scene where when it, he mentions that he approved of their death, there was this person named Stephen. And Stephen was arrested and Stephen was stoned to death. And while Stephen was getting stoned to death, he prayed and asked God to forgive the people who were stoning him to death. And it says Paul was sitting right there. And I'm sure that lodged, that goaded him. Because there's something about the purity of a witness who is not embittered even in the midst of while they are dying at your hands. And so he tells this story and that wouldn't have been a story that would have been easy to tell. Because the Christians around all knew that Paul was there. They all knew that there were people that were doing a bid in Jerusalem because of Paul. And so he could have easily tried to, 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 to hide that or dilute that part of the story. But no, he said, this is what God did in my life. And so one of the things that reasons why people don't want to hear what Christians have to say is because we're not authentic. We're not real. We oftentimes present ourselves as if we always had it together. But what Paul does here is he gives the good, the bad, and the ugly. He said, look, I was religious. I studied with all of y'all. Yeah, y'all know. Y'all can check. He's like, look, you can ask him right there. I got an A on the Hebrew test more than they did, right? Like, but then he was like, but then when it came to getting wrecked, I was oppressing these people. I was persecuting them. Do you, are you willing to share the ugly parts of your story in order so that someone can see the beauty of Christ? My man, Ambassador, uh, he's a Christian rap artist. He once said, this line blew me away. It was like 20-something years ago. He said, when the bad news is bitter as winners with Jack Frost, the good news can shine like diamonds on black cloth. And what he's saying there is that when you see someone, when they're showcasing you diamonds in a jewelry store, they don't put it on a clear plastic. They put it on black cloth so the brilliance of the diamond can shine out. When we are supposed to be a public witness, the black cloth is our before Christ. The black cloth is what we were like before, what we were trusting in. Oh, yes, I will tell you about how I was self-righteous and how I cheated on somebody. And yes, I will tell you about how all these things were true of me because so I can, you can see that it's not me that's standing here here just because I'm so good it's because Jesus did a work in me we have to resurrect your authentic story what is your authentic story because when people can see oh wow you were just as broken as I was then they can start to realize that there's something greater at work in your life not just you being a good person not just you being a nice guy not just you just being a solid sister but something that is actually supernatural and spiritual that was interrupted and transformed in you but that can only happen if you're willing to tell your authentic story so one key question is what was your life like before you put faith in Christ just having that locked and loaded in your mind and ready to go, like to be able to succinctly, 30 seconds, a minute, just be able to say like, yo, this is what I was like. This is what I did. 
And people relate to those imperfections. They relate to that sense of, of, of honesty, of searching and pining for something bigger than yourself and not finding it in yourself. Because so many people are trapped because they think, I've been told I got to find it and find my truth. And the reality is we were never meant to sustain the weight and the pressure and the burden of finding our purpose, our meaning, and our sense of reality and truth all by ourselves. We can't handle that, which is why we're so anxious, which is why we're so stressful, which is why we're so uh, avoided of commitment. Because what if I make the wrong decision and as a result of that ruin my life? But when I stand and understand that there's a God who is orchestrating my life, then I don't have to be as anxious about that. And that's good news for people. How did you meet Christ? That's the second part, right? Not just tell the before, because sometimes we like to linger there a little bit too long. Yeah, man, and I was uh, at the clubs, and I was just doing all the things, and, I, and it's like, all right, like, let, let's turn the corner eventually. <laughs> like, when did you meet Jesus, right? The star of this show is not your sin. Um, <laughs> but he continues. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and all Judea, and then, then to the Gentiles, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. But God has helped me to this very day. So I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer and for the first and as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. Do you hear the clear gospel message he's just explaining? He's just saying, look, I was not disobedient to the vision. He is now saying, and notice the negative, he was saying, look, it would have been foolish for me to disobey this vision that I get from God. In the middle of noon, I'm seeing a light brighter than the sun. I'm hearing Jesus saying, why are you persecuting me? And like, and then he's telling me to go and be a light. And so like, what am I supposed to do when he experienced that? that? That's the case that he's making. This is that part of that process of the Roman in, uh, casings of argument in the case. He says the Messiah would suffer, die, resurrect, and bring light to the world. And somehow that process was already written and prophesied in the Old Testament. And that now was, it had happened. And he's just giving him the information straight up. This is what Jesus. But then he says, and the reason what that resurrection and that death is supposed to do, he says, I preach that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. To repent is literally to change your mind, to say, I used to think this way about Jesus. I used to think this way about God. I used to think this way about being selfish. And then I turn around. That's something you can say you do. And what Paul is saying, it's not enough to say that. Then I have to demonstrate it with my deeds. And that's what he's saying is the message. And that's our message too. Look, Jesus did the hard part. He did the suffering, dying, and resurrecting. But there's another part to this that also I can't just get stuck in my, if my testimony of what I used to do is still what I do, then maybe the power of the resurrection hasn't yet infected your life. There needs to be not perfection, but there needs to be some progress, amen, that you can point back to so that people can see, oh, there's a difference that this makes. 
That'd be me like advertising some like dietary plan or supplement and being like, when I started on this, I was at 200 pounds and now I'm at 205. And it's like, okay. <laughs> what was your life like after you put faith in Christ? And again, not perfection, but progress. And here's what we need to resurrect in order to get to that. Simple. Resurrect obedience. He said, I was not disobedient to the vision. And I'm calling other people to obedience. Obedience is a bad word in the culture. You don't want to talk about obedience. That's oppressive. Even Sprite, though, say, obey your thirst. You got to obey something. You got to, I'm just saying, you got to obey something. He says, turn to God, follow him. God is helping me. Did you keep that? He said, with God's help, I'm doing all this. And I'm not making this up. Well, let's look at the reactions. This is the last part. He says, and as he was saying these things, in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words, for the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. In this, we see Paul making his defense. And the the thing that's important to note, right? And this is why I think that we wanted to land here. Because there's multiple reactions when you share your story. And you share your story. Not everybody comes to faith in Jesus. Some will say, you are out of your mind. That's crazy. You believe that? It might even be with a sense of scorn, maybe even ridicule. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind. And he still gave him some respect. Most excellent Festus. But I'm speaking true and rational words. True and rational. That's the nature of our faith. It's founded on truth, and it's rational. It's not myths. He said, look, this didn't happen. We didn't make this up somewhere. Do you realize, do you hear the public nature? He's saying all this happened where everybody could see. I'm naming names. I'm talking about experiences. But then he also didn't get distracted by the naysayers. (laughs) He said, that's why I'm talking to King Agrippa right now. So as I was saying, King Agrippa, (laughs) since I know you actually are into studying the prophets, he brought him to a point of decision. He had a hope that even while he was in prison, his whole goal was not even to be free. His goal was that somebody would see Jesus. He says, do you believe the prophets, King Agrippa? I know you do. I can tell that you're searching. I can tell that you're here. And and I can tell by the way when I talk about these things that, that is resonating with you. And he said, I wish that all would be like me, except for these chains, these unjust chains that were put on me. 
I'm not putting it here because I did something wrong, but because I did something right. And so we have to resurrect three things that I see here in this text. Virtues that we see throughout the scripture that Paul will talk about in 1 Corinthians 13. And that's faith, hope, and love. We have to resurrect the faith that these are true and rational words that we are building our lives on. We have to resurrect the hope that people can change as a result of us being a witness. And we have to resurrect the love that says even in the midst of someone not showing me love, I'm going to show them love anyway. But then last part of that I love, he says, What's your, he says do you believe the prophets? He brought them to a point of decision. A next step. And this sometimes can be the hardest part of this conversation. Is actually inviting someone into. It's one thing to share your story and you can do that. And okay, everybody's sharing their truth. But then it's like comes to the next, like, what you going to do about it? That could be hard. And I will offer you this. Sometimes the next step, as the Holy Spirit will reveal to you in conversations, is not, it's just to pray for that person. That's the next step. There is nothing else that you can say at that point. Sometimes the conversation gets, all you get to is the first half of your story. Something happens and the person has to go. You don't have enough time to talk. And the next step is maybe just being intentional about finishing. And yes, sometimes the next step is actually, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. I know there's something else. See, what Paul understood, and the reason why he said, I know you do, is he realized there were some other things that was holding Agrippa back. The backstory of Bernice, his sister, was that they was more than just brother and sister. That there had been rumors of an incestuous relationship. And a lot of just immorality in their lives. And so what was at stake for Agrippa was a lifestyle change. Not just ideas and beliefs. I'm a, this is a fascinating thing that Barna found, that spiritual hunger is not static, and we can help it grow. And this is why Paul, even knowing that background, still had hope. Look at what they found. The data indicates that spiritual hunger varies among non-Christians, in part depending on the Christians they know. When non-Christians have experienced vibrancy, personal care, intelligence, reasonableness, and a gentle, non-judgmental approach from Christians, their spiritual curiosity overall and interest in Christianity in specific is elevated. In other words, we can change the temperature and create more of a hunger inside of people for the things that we believe in if we just show up and be light. (laughs) It's not a static thing. But we have to deepen our convictions to get there and believe that this gospel that changed our lives can change others. And the evidence and the stories are all around us. During the pandemic, uh, just about over a year ago, you know, someone started uh, coming here. She um, had came up from Atlanta to New York because You know, she was struggling in college and was trying to transfer, but the transfer opportunities weren't working out. And so even though she had aspirations of being the next generation of black excellence, she kind of hit this wall of, man, I can't even finish college. How is that going to happen? 
So there was some sense of a depression there that kind of started her on a search for God. And she, for a little bit, was like, I'm just going to do this on my own. I'm just going to learn who God is and whatnot. I don't need others. But as a, after two years of stagnancy, realized that wasn't the case. So she went online and just did a search for cool churches. Some of y'all know that search. A website came up with a pastor that she was like, oh, he looks cool. The church looks cool. Let me go check this out. And so she started to come. And at first it was a little awkward because she didn't know anybody in the community and saw other people hugging each other and being like, man, I wish I was a part of that, but I'm not. But kept coming, kept trusting, kept going. Then she came back because Josh remembered her name and was like, wow, he, they, they know me. Like they know that when I'm here, like I'm, I'm seen in this way. And started going and getting involved in growth groups, going to events. And then one day, what something happened where she just took a step of faith of confiding in somebody here in the church that she was struggling with finding a place to stay. And that person, Amanda, said, you can stay with us. That was a type of generosity she'd never seen before. And so in the midst of that, began to have her own expectations of what life was like, not just church was like, but the type of way that she needed to be open to other people, expounded on, grown. And so that even when there was conflict that she started to have with someone in the church, whereas her old pattern, which is just walk away and stay distant and just cut you off, this love ethic that she was starting to see caused her to realize, well, wait a minute, maybe I need to lean into this conversation and try to grow and work through it. And now as a result, we sometimes see her up on Sundays worshiping. I'm talking about Naya Ford. And in her own words, in her own story, she talks about how she's learned this church has helped her to break down the walls that she had with connecting with people and understand who God is. That is what happens when we go public with our witness. And that's just one of many stories that we could tell here. But I want to just for the sake of time and, and, and practicality, as we close this series, give you some tools just to highlight from Naya's own story what I see there that was so significant. One, practice hospitality. And when I say hospitality, I mean everything from being friendly to somebody who you don't see, you don't recognize, who comes in the door, to even taking the next step and inviting someone to another conversation, another opportunity to fellowship that these are the things that help people to see that this cold world that we live in, that this cold place of isolated loneliness that we feel in this city isn't the end of the story, that we can be drawn into more. Also, leverage resources. She, she Googled, y'all. Uh, there's a QR code that I uh, wanted to offer that has a bunch of different resources, books, articles, videos, all designed to help you be more equipped and go in public with your witness. Yeah, pull out your phone now. Go get it. It's there for you. There's a lot of that I couldn't get into in the course of this short message that I want to equip you to be able to go deeper and create and develop the type of skill sets and develop the type of tools. And they're all out there. Everything from testimonies. Uh, man, there's this brother, No Malice, that was on The Breakfast Club a couple years ago and shared his story in such a way that was so dynamic in the fire, right? You got Charlemagne and other people just bombarding with questions and he just navigates that thing and it's inspiring to me. Sometimes we need to see inspiring examples for us. 
So leverage resources. But then lastly, resurrect conversations. We have to get to the place where we realize that maybe instead of just being on my phone the whole ride, I can go and turn to someone and see what's going on in their inner world. The funny thing is, when Nietzsche said those words, God is dead, and talked about the world having moved on in 1882, at that point, there were about eight or nine million Christians in Africa. Now, as we see in 2000, there were over 335 million in Africans, from eight million to 335 million. The center of gravity has even shifted in the Christian faith. And there are aspects where, so the reason why I bring it, this ain't it, y'all, the, 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 the questioning and like God's spirit is still moving in the world, y'all. And as we look to trust God, I'll quote another old dude. Mark Twain once said he was, after hearing a newspaper, was preparing a report that he had died because there was a story that came out that he had been very sick and died. And he said, <laughs> he told the newspaper, the report of my death has been greatly exaggerated. <laughs> I might have been sick, but it didn't take me out. The reports of God's death have been greatly exaggerated. He is alive and well in this place and in all of us. And in the same way that he resurrected, he resurrects us and gives us a story that then can, use, can be used to transform the nations. But that can only happen when we go public. Would you stand with me as we close this out and look to proclaim a God of truth, a God of righteousness, and a God of justice, amen who wants his kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. There were over 200 of us that went out to uh, Harlem for the Pray March Act rally in, on Monday. And it was just such a, it's going public. And it was transformational. And as we proclaim the whole counsel of God and the whole kingdom of God, this is what we get to do. We don't got to do it. We get to do it. Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you for the witness of the Apostle Paul who gives us a perspective on how we can resurrect humble boldness, resurrect an authentic story, resurrect faith, hope, and love. God, I pray for everyone here that you would give them the tools the insight and the passion to tell their story, to go public with their faith. We thank you for the Nayas that are here and that are coming as a result of the witness of your church, your people. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you 
We hear from people all across the country about what God is doing through our podcast, and we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at info at bridgechurchnyc.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for both of those social media outlets is at bridgechurchnyc. Our website is bridgechurchnyc.com. If you're in the New York City area, we have services at 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. on Sundays at 98 Fifth Avenue in Brooklyn, New York, right next to the Barclay Center. We are praying for you and we hope to see you soon.